Hello, gentle listener. It's me, Ed Fortune. It's a Sunday, probably, so you're listening to The Bookworm on FabRadioInternational.com or possibly via the Starburst Podcasts. What books have we got coming up today? We, I'm going to be reviewing 20,000 Trillion Leagues Under the Sea by Adam Roberts and Ninfa will be reviewing Wicked Lovely. Uh, Ninfa hasn't said hello because she's still trapped in the 1950s at the moment, but she'll be swooping in just to talk about that book. Do we want to say who our interview is with? Oh yeah, we're interviewing this uh, fantasy author. She's called Robin Hobb. You may have heard of her. She'll be in the middle of the show, but please don't skip ahead. Please listen to the entire thing, because we're awesome. Thank you. Across the world. So, before we get into any of that, we're going to go through some book news. So, uh, first item, Innsmouth Press, so we like Innsmouth Press, they do things that are distinctly, shall we say, Call of Cthulhu, lots of tentacles. They have a submissions window open. Ooh. It's called She Walks in Shadows. Ooh. It's uh, for uh, Mythos stories, Cthulhu Mythos stories. Okay. About ladies. Oh. For ladies. Oh. Women only. Women only writers. Women writers only. Ooh, intriguing. So, so they they they've been. I think that's awesome. Short mm. version. I, I, I'm really. It looks really cool. I really look forward to the um, the anthology. I know that when Fox Spirit did their Only Girl in the World, they allowed all gender identities and sexes mm, in, mm, mm, but you mm. had to write a story about girls, mm. and that that's an interesting mix and balance, mm. uh, and looks really really good actually. Um, but yeah, it sounds great. Innsmouth Press. Um, go on to the internet and have a look and read their submission guidelines. What else have Innsmouth Press done that I might have heard of, Ed? Um, they have thrown together a whole load of collections of uh, Colocophilu stuff. Oh, okay. Mythos so stuff that, that mythos sounds like that's very much their thing. Innsmouth is a location in the Cthulhu Mythos. Ah, so this, this is something I do not know barely anything about, to be honest. Um, so it's it's one of the places. It's it's full of it's full of. Um, Gill-slitted mm. people, yeah. big eyes, mm, a bit like yeah. a bit like some local town you dislike. <laughs> uh, yeah, this this is this is not my thing, but but good luck to all those people who like enjoy that. Sounds sounds good. They, they produce some really really nice stuff, and they produce some really interesting essays. Uh, myth, the the mythos, uh, the Cthulhu mythos specifically, has always been an interesting thing, and I think people are starting to get past the kind of cuddly fluffy Cthulhu with bat wings and realising that the actual horror lies in the things that you cannot understand and you know the things that you know, you must you, you must not say it because you will go mad and the fact you know cuddly Cthulhu cuddly Cthulhu is cuddly he's not going to drive you insane but what he represents he's supposed to represent the end point of your sanity you know, it's like the okay, the sky's gone t- gone purple. Everyone's speaking a language I don't understand. Things are beyond my comprehension. And what is that in the sea? <laughs> and that's the last thing you think before you, your brain falls falls out. It's that sort of horror. Uh, H. P. Lovecraft once described it as uh, existential horror for atheists. He wanted Ooh, something. Okay. He wanted something that people who had no fear of 
uh, you know, no concept of the afterlife, no no view of hell. Mm. So so he created this kind of hell on earth, hell on earth mm. idea. Um, that that you are insignificant and small. But anyway, we should we should do a special about the the mythos at some point, but not today. No, it's not like we can get H.P. Lovecraft on the show because he's very dead. He's <laughs> uh, <laughs> been dead for a very long time. They are they are prominent uh, mythos writers still alive today. So talking about things that man shall not what of and, and incomprehensible ends of the world, shall we talk about Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett joining up with Dirk Marks? To produce a Radio Four dramatization of Good Omens, even even I am excited about this, and and this is a terrible, terrible thing, and I'll probably get my book card revoked. I've not actually read it. Ah. I know, and I'm a terrible, terrible person. I've, I've started a couple of times, but um, yeah, there's there's crazy stuff happening in my life right now. I've not quite got through it all. Isn't the problem that every time we put the the audio tape version of someone reading out the book, after about five minutes, it turns into Green's Greatest Hits? <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> but I, I listened to um, the one they did previously. Never were. Thank you. Uh, Manx, and I really liked that. Dirk Manx, uh, if, you, if you think, ooh, I better know that name from, he is the guy who was responsible for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy stage production. He also did the other half of the radio dramas for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So he didn't do the original radio play. He did the stuff that were books first. Uh-huh. He was an old friend of Douglas Adams. He's a lovely guy. I've talked to Dirk before. Um, he likes the drums. He's a really, really nice guy. Um, he is the safest pair of hands I can possibly think of, to be, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. And, and Neil and Terry both seem to be on board. They're on board. They're cameoing. Yes. Yeah, well, I've, I've seen a, a picture on the old tumblers this morning um, of them at the read through that they had a couple of days ago. Um, and I'm stunned. I'm stunned they managed to keep this quiet until the point that they'd got everybody in the room for the read-through, quite frankly. Uh, compl- uh, the thing is, they're all professionals, really, so I suppose that you get that. But the list of people, the list of people. Oh, oh, good grief. It's, so, it's a fandom's dream. So we've got Peter Saranovich uh, as Crowley. We've got Mark he- Heap as Zephyrill. If you don't know the books, essentially the agent of heaven and the agent of hell. Um, the, the plot of Good Omens is essentially what would what would happen if Omen, the Omen, the you know the biblical end of the world, the Antichrist. What if the Antichrist grew up in a place called Tidsbury, <laughs> you know, and went cricketing and had a kind of nice idyllic kind of you know summer kind of beano reading, lots and lots of tea and jam style life. What if he was raised just in an environment where you know it wasn't he wasn't encouraged to be evil. It was just a nice place and. Humanity kind of just got in the way of being demonic, and he just grew up. And instead of being called Damien, he was called Adam. And you know what would happen if that was your Antichrist? And how would heaven respond? And how would hell respond? Because surely they've been waiting for this fight for some time. So there's that. It looks great. Um, I I will lay listener. If you are looking for a competition, I will give you. I will give you a pint of jelly babies. Ooh, a whole packet. A whole packet. If you can, guess who will play death and you're not allowed Christopher Lee. So if you get a guess and it's not Christopher Lee, I will give you a pack of jelly babies. Because I'm so confident that it's going to be Christopher Lee as the voice of death. Have they not said yet? They've not said yet. It's got to be. Surely it's got to be. Um, Unless it's Terry. Oh, oh, no, no. How big is the part of death? Very big. Oh, it's not Terry, then. And Christopher Lee has done the voice of death before. Uh, so it's Terry Pratchett's death, because it's Terry Pratchett's death, and this not Neil Gaiman's death. <laughs> uh, 
They both have different deaths. Uh, if you know the books, you're like, ooh, that makes sense. If you don't know the books, essentially. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Neil Gaiman's death is a... Is a is it's a, a lady. It's a golf girl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Terry Pratchett's death is death. And he speaks like Christopher Lee. Because it's all going to be Christopher Lee. Um, oh, Pats and Joseph is going to be famine as well. So it'll be interesting to see who the rest of them are. Especially, there's characters... You have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and then you also have the other four. Uh, if you've read the books, you'll get that. If you haven't read the books, you should listen to the show in December. Um, there's going to be six episodes, half an hour long. Um, it's blatantly going to come out of the week between Christmas and New Year. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's uh, interesting. The press release is saying December, and then somebody internally from the production basically uh, blabbed that it's Christmas. That, that's what they did with Neville. <laughs> yeah, yes, and they absolutely. Also, they also did the Saturday special. Um, which will happen just before Women's Hour. Which, you know, Assuming the world's not ended by them. Providing the world hasn't ended. And meanwhile, in Hamazon... Hamazon? Hamazon. Meanwhile, in Hamazon versus Ashetti. Um, <laughs> Somebody should come up with a Paul Montone name for this, really, by this point, quite frankly. Uh, <laughs> we ship it. It's our OTP. <laughs> Hamazon and Ashetti are OTP. Yes, so Amazon, Amazon, Amazon and Hachette are having a fight between each other. They're two huge global corporations. Uh, we're just sitting there watching them as giants play in the playground, and they really shouldn't. But anyway, everyone, everyone else suffers while they're messing around. There's been Authors United have gotten together again. I prefer Authors City. Authors City. <laughs> oh, Office City versus off Office United. Office City one, Office United two. Avoid the Office City's enter at that point. Because oh, it's awful. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Anyway, moving on. Not not non Manchester references. Americans listening to the show will be like, but... have they just made a Man City reference? We have made a Man City reference. I'm sorry, we're sitting in the city of Manchester right now, live live into your ear, or, or recorded into your ear. Anyway. Nonsense aside, Amazon is continuing to sanction books. Uh, 2,500 Ashetti offers and over 7,000 titles have now been apparently affected. Ashetti offers have seen their sales in Amazon decline by over 50%. Um, some, of them, group- some of them as many as 90%, which is. That's just got to be a threat to your livelihood, hasn't it? It's, it's totally. I mean, it's not as if offers are well paid. And yeah, and, it's, and what the Authors United are saying is it's not the guys you've heard of who are losing out, it's the guys who are mid list, who are selling, you know, enough probably to support them, just about, maybe, perhaps. And if their sales are down like 50 or 90%, that's like, how do they make the mortgage next month? I mean, it's just. It, it's getting kind of sticky and it's getting kind of nasty and it, it's affecting people's lives. Guys, stop it. And to, at this point, we say support your local bookstore, support your indie bookstore. There's websites like Hive that Hive, you can yeah. use. Um, There's a couple of others them. as well, that, but we need to check them out before we talk to them about you, talk to you about them. But essentially, the old alternatives to Amazon are available. Use them and support your, your local independent bookstore or your local Waterstones. They're just as lovely as well. Get off your bottom, buy a book. If you can't get off your bottom and buy a book, and we understand if you can't, try other online services, because Amazon is too convenient. It's it's easier, quicker, mm. more seductive. We're not saying it's a dark side, but no, no, we're saying it's a dark side. I, I actually, as part of this exercise, because I, I was like, oh, but, but I use Amazon quite a lot. Oh, I feel a bit bad. And I went back and looked, and actually, I've not been using Amazon as much as I thought I had. I've plainly been buying my stuff from elsewhere. 
I get my books directly from the publishers. You you do, but that's a, a different thing. Uh, you can you can order directly from publishers, mm. and if you really want that book, just order directly from the publisher. I, I tend to find a thing. I, I I will wander into a bookstore and accidentally end up buying like six things. That, that's what bookstores are for. It is. Uh, science fiction author Margaret Atwood uh, has become the first writer to submit work for an art project called the Future Library, which will see her min- manuscript released in a hundred years' time. Um. Should be interesting. Devised by Scottish artist Katie Pearson, uh, the project is based in Norway and by the city of Oslo has get gifted a patch of woodland near the, the for near the city for the Future Library Trust. The idea is to have prominent authors donate books that will be released in a hundred years' time, uh, or at least release work that will be released in a hundred years' time. That's fascinating. We we wish them the best. Um, I think Margaret Atwood is one of those people who loses out a lot by being on school syllabuses. I think I think what I think personally one of, one of the things I have with Margaret Atwood is she very early on in her career desperately tried to avoid the science fiction label and she writes science fiction and she it's because it's because it's dystopian and because it's a slightly more highbrow. Mm. There's that whole thing of well I'd quite like to win the Man Booker Prize. It's like yeah but you know what sci-fi's cooler. We've got jetpacks. Join our side. We, we we are more popular. We are more progressive. We are you know we are more literate. Is it is it not also that thing of um, snobbery? No, well, I think snobbery is the wrong word. I think it, it's if you're trying to maximise your audience. Sci-fi is still very often seen as a niche thing, maybe by publishers and by booksellers, and sort of shoved into the corner of the room. But it isn't anymore. Yeah. Is you look at all the Hollywood blockbusters and the whole sci-fi genre. Genre has always been popular. All it says, all it says at the start is it's, it's sci-fi. You expect it to be slightly more fun. Hmm. You know. You, but yet, Children of Men is sci-fi. So, um, finally, uh, talking of movies, Sony have created a literary development job. Um, there's a chap called, what's he called, Doherty. What's his first name? It's Mr. Doherty. Was, Mr. It, Doherty. was it Scott? <laughs> uh, Ryan Doherty Ryan has been um, uh, tapped uh, for, in New York City. Essentially, he's now responsible for trying to make um, books into movies. You'd have thought that they already had this job, but apparently not. So he's he's involved in things like Outlander. He's going to be involved with stuff like uh, Captain Phillips. Um, closely, closely, closely tied with um, lots and lots of publishers across the, uh, the across New York. He's based in New York. So, what would you like to see made into a film or a TV series that uh, either hasn't been so far or was done a little bit badly for your mind? That's a very, very, very big question. I think it's going to be the Ballad of Halo Jones. It's always going to be the Ballad of Halo Jones. It it is for you, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Obviously, we did some preparation, dear gentle listener. Um, And I came up with Enie Blyton's Mallory Towers series, which I don't think has ever been adapted, although somebody will probably tell me if I'm wrong. Um, Just because it was one of those first series of books that I read as a kid. And it's it's the girls at school thing. It's it's the Tracy Beaker of its generation, really, in many ways, I think. And I think that'd be interesting to see. I mean, as we're in Manchester, it would be horrible for us not to say The Weird Stone of Brisingham. Mm. If you've never heard of The Weird Stone of Brisingham, you've missed out. You should you should look up Alan Garner. He's one of the great British fantasy writers. Again, for me, that unfortunately suffers from um, compulsion at school. I need to go back to it now as a grown-up. Yeah, I, I actually hogged my copy at school and didn't let anyone else read it because I loved it so much. Oh, no, no, we, it was like, it was one of those things that was on our reading list at school and, and they just they did it badly, I think. But, uh, maybe we should talk about that at the end of the show. Yeah. 
Shall we? Shall we do a book review next? Sure. Let's do that. If you're listening to us live, you've just missed a whole load of adverts for places in Manchester. Uh, all sorts of interesting alternative things. Uh, we like to mention this every once in a while, just in case you are able to listen to us live 12 to 1 on Sundays. But mostly, you'll have missed those completely, because we'll have cut them out for the podcast. I'm going to be talking about 20 Trillion Leagues Under the Sea by Adam Roberts. Now, I was going to be talking about Cameron Hurley's Mirror Empire. I finished it this morning. It's still digesting my brain. Oh my goodness, that's a good book. Well, I'll give you a proper review in a couple of weeks' time when I've had a chance to, to get this into my head. So Adam Adam Roberts um, has got a new book out which is called Betty, which is about uplifted animals, where they've uplifted animals to ask so we can ask them if we can eat them. Uh, Adam Roberts has written Hobbit parodies. He's written all sorts of quirky things. He did a series of short stories called Adam Robots, which were quite funny. He's very much a science fiction author. So what we can expect from anything written by Adam Roberts is something really quirky, really strange, and really weird. And 20 Trillion Leagues Under the Sea is definitely that. So, it starts in 1955, funded in part by a reclusive Swiss millionaire and working, they claim, on Nemo's actual blueprints recovered from, from uh, discovered in India, the French Navy built a, a replica Nautilus, crewed with sailors and scientists, uh, powered by a nuclear, atomic, uh, nuclear generator. The short-tempered Captain Mason leads his team, uh, team to, uh, to explore the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Things go a bit wrong. It's called 20 Trillion Leagues Under the Sea, and those of you who are observant will notice that the planet Earth does not have 20 trillion leagues. Mm. It starts to sink, because it's a submarine and that's what it's supposed to do. Then it doesn't rise. Then it really doesn't rise. Then it's definitely, all the engines are definitely pointing upwards, but it's still going down. Oh dear. And things get really, really strange. Um, Not only has physics gone completely mad... But um, also they're running out of food, this massive paranoia. Essentially the idea is you, uh, the idea of this book is you take a bunch of French people and some spies and some Indian scientists, you put them in a tin can and then you watch them go slowly mad as things get weirder and weirder and more and more surreal. They, they look outside and they realise that they are monsters, they are shark-like people who are there to, to try and tear them apart if they want to go out. Guns work weirdly. Food works weirdly. Water's moving weirdly. The physics of the entire thing has gone completely and at least surreal. Mm-hmm. It's very... What Adam Roberts does very well is he, he explores this world of, of claustrophobia and of madness and of fear. And yet at the same time, he also has that kind of very much that... That, that 1950s slash, that Jules Verne kind of period feel to it. So you've got the 1950s Cold War paranoia going on, mm-hmm. but you also have that kind of classic science fiction vibe. So you've got the classic kind of, you know, we must we, we must explore, we must understand. Uh, no, you might be a communist or a spy. <laughs> Bang! Oh, are the communists amongst us? The communists are definitely on. Oh uh, dear! Have you or ever have you been? Have, uh, have you ever been? Yes. Are you a spy? Are you a, and so on? 
Uh, and also there's the whole thing, because they're all French, um, the, one of the guys there is seen as a collaborator. He's accused of being a collaborator very early on, where clearly he's not. Clearly he's just some sort of high-level minister, uh, and so on. Then it gets even more surreal. Oh, good grief. Every single, essentially every single turn of the page, it gets weirder <laughs> and weirder. And one of the things that's kind of glorious of this is that there's also a whole lot of plates. Um, he's got a, a colleague of his, uh, Adam Roberts has got a, I'm just going to look at the name, uh, has, has had a series of plates added to it. So I mean, even the to, outside of the book looks gorgeous looking on his website. Oh, it's absolutely, it's absolutely beautiful thing. But as, as we go through the, the various bits and pieces, there's various plates which are just black and white drawings. Um, and these are, you know, meticulously drawn, detailed, they bring you into the world. It's utterly surreal. It is completely strange. It is very compelling. Um, and also one of those things that as they plummet towards their destiny and towards their fate, things get suddenly and suddenly more worse and things get suddenly and suddenly more surreal. And yet you can't put the book down. It, I really like 2020 Nukes Under the Sea. And I've got to the point now where I trust Adam Roberts. I trust Adam Roberts to deliver to me something very strange. When I first when I first read the book, I finished it, I put it down and I just went, blimey. Because it ends in a way that you don't expect, and it does things that you don't expect. It is pure science fiction, and at the same time, it is pure science fiction, and at the same time, it is something more, um, something deeper, something more specific, and something, something with more meaning. And yet, at the same point, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I really liked it. Good, lovely. So that's on Golands. Um, and that's out now, and it's been out since the start of the year. Okay, fantastic. Hello, everybody. So, I got to talk to Robin Hobb when I was at the Worldcon just a few weeks ago. So, um, they, they took me into the press room, I sat down, she's completely lovely, and um, here is a tape of me talking to one of the greatest fantasy authors alive today. This is Fab Radio International. Welcome to the Starburst podcast, The Bookworm, Robin Hobb. Oh, thank you, I'm so pleased to be here. Um, so, let's get straight into it. Tell us all about Fool's Assassin. Fool's Assassin is the next uh, chapter, if you will, in the saga of Fitz and the Fool. Uh, chronologically, the events that occur in it happen after the events in the Rainwilds Chronicles. So some time has passed both for the reader and for Fitz and for the Fool. So you are going to meet them at a, a more mature stage in their life, we hope. <laughs> so fans of the, the previous pre- previous series what, what's changed, what will be familiar and what will be completely different? What should they expect? Well, I think you should expect that there have been changes in the six duchies and in Buckkeep as there is in, in any civilization. Um, I don't think it's a major spoiler at this point to say that um, uh, to the whole natural environment, uh, a major top-of-the-chain predator has been reintroduced, which are the dragons. And uh, you can't do that in any environment without having it affect things all the way down. And uh, time has passed. Uh, 
with with war at an end uh, but keep has grown uh, the, the six duchies are prospering, the trade is, is increased, uh, new settlements in the rain wilds. So there are all kinds of, of things going on that are going to affect Fitz's life in ways that um, some of us don't deal well with change. <laughs> Talking about change, there is, a, there is a major change in his life because when it opens, Fitz should be happy and it gets quite dark. Um, why do you torture your characters so? Oh, I, I, I don't torture my characters. I, I really don't. They get themselves into trouble and I do my best to help them out. <laughs> um, with, with this series too, there is a, a setup again fairly early in the series that um, the fool has foreseen only one future in which Fitz survives. So um, that, of course, means that all of the other futures he's seen, Fitch perishes. perishes. And uh, so that's that's something he has to deal with. There's a, I mean, there's a, there's a subtle hint as to the, new, the name of the new character that's introduced into the book. What can you tell us about the new character? Obviously. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> this is where you ask questions and I refuse to answer them. <laughs> um, what can we expect with the series going forward because I, I finished the book and I was desperate to read the next one um, what can we expect what's, you can't tell us what's going to happen next but Mm-mm. what surprises should we brace ourselves for oh I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to drag my feet on that too because I, I think uh, I'm always so disappointed when an author says something like oh a major character will die in this series and then I read the whole book expecting that to happen and waiting for the trap door to open. So um, I'm, I'm not going to do any spoilers. I feel I feel a little bad telling you that, but uh, all I can tell you is, is, is life goes on as it does for the rest of us, and they will be hard-pressed to deal with it sometimes, but on they go. <laughs> the, especially with the fool, there's a, there's a feeling of um, gender identity and gender fluidity with the character and with the world in general. Um, and what inspires you to to incorporate into that? Is that a deliberate conscious thing, or is it just part of who you are when you're writing? I think that for me, as for a, a lot of other writers I've talked to, uh, character generation happens in a part of our mind that we don't have really conscious access to. I like to think that all the characters are really products of their world. But I, I know as a writer that everything I write is actually a production, a, a combination of my own experiences and things I've read and the morning newspaper and things I see in my neighborhood. But um, the fool stepped out into the spotlight on the stage and not only did he say I'm not a minor character um, in the first outline I had made for the Farseer trilogy, there was exactly one sentence about him. But he stepped out onto the stage and said, I'm not a minor character, and I'm going to influence events. Um, And he's been a challenge to write sometimes, because he doesn't always follow the script. Uh, Somehow I always end up about where I expect it to be at the end of the book, but the the pathway becomes a little bit convoluted along the way. What is our fascination with dragons, and what is your journey with dragons? Oh, dragons... Um, 
I actually had a long conversation with Y Dragons uh, with John Howe when uh, I was recently privileged to meet him in New Zealand. And um, <laughs> this is going to be a very strange uh, comparison, but John and I ended up watching the Transformers movie together. <laughs> and uh, I began comparing dragons to Transformers. And that is, um, uh, in, in this world, you know, we, we grow up, and some of us have big brothers. And for some of us, big brothers are protectors. And sometimes they are the ones who torment us. And sometimes they do both at the same time. So my speculation is that um, as humans, uh, and, and this was something I originally read, and I'm sorry, I don't remember where, but somebody speculated that we keep pets because as a species, we are a little bit lonely for another sentient species, somebody that we could talk to who doesn't have our baggage or our connections uh, talking to a totally um, neutral party when you talk to your cat or your dog take, take a walk with your dog and your dog's not judging you and, and um, you, your dog's always got your back and so the idea that maybe we want a big brother we want something bigger and more powerful than us and we kind of hope that maybe it will be somebody wise who, who protects us and who counsels us but we also know that we may get the bully who takes our toys away. Uh, and, and so I think that's kind of where we get dragons or, or transformers or uh, in many of the, the invasion from another planet stories. You, you see that theme repeated of are they going to come and help us and clean up our world and tell us to pick up our toys or are they going to come and say, um, too bad for you, I'm taking it all. The, the Six Stitches is a world where dragons come back and you've brought yes. the dragons back uh, apologies for anyone who's not read them because um, <laughs> you've missed out <laughs> why why is there such a hunger for dragons now because fantasy is very firmly back what has happened oh why why is there a hunger for dragons now um I, I'm going to go back to my to my comparison of a big brother we, we look around our world and there are times when I really wish something or somebody would step in and say, enough of this nonsense. Um, pick up your toys, clean up this mess, and get on with it. And uh, I think when we, when we bring dragons into a story, uh, to a certain amount, it's, it's wish fulfillment. Um, sometimes it's, it's dread fulfillment of what if this happens? What if something more powerful than us, and it can be a dragon or it can be an invading army from another country, but what if something more powerful than we are comes in and imposes its will on us without regard to our happiness or even our survival? And other times it's the wish fulfillment of what if something wiser than us uh, intervened in our lives. Um, I'm thinking of Tea with the Black Dragon by R.A. McAvoy, I hope I've got that right. Um, oh, and other books where dragons are wise and benevolent. Um, um, is there any great project that you've not yet done, be it any great creative project that you've not yet done that you have in mind that you want to explore? What is, what is next? I have no idea at this point. Um, what, what happens to, not just to me, but to many writers is 
you're riding along happily in your world and suddenly you get to the point where, gee, these next three chapters are going to be hard to write. And suddenly this golden book appears on the horizon in your dreams and it, it looks so easy to write and it's such a pure storyline and you long to abandon this and run off there. And, and you have to firmly tell yourself, that's the next book and I will make notes about it and I will think about it and if I get a clever piece of dialogue, I'll jot it down in my file to save. Um, the sad part is about halfway through the first book of that beautiful gleaming project, you get stuck and you say, oh look, there's the book on the next horizon. <laughs> but we keep on writing. <laughs> what would you say to um, a young teenager who's currently you know, maybe writing fan fiction, maybe writing fantasy, who, who dreams of being where you are now, what would you be your one piece of advice? Right here, right now. And um, meaning, we're, we're often told, um, write what you know. And I know as a teenager, I thought that meant that I couldn't write about somebody having an adventure climbing mountains because I'd never climbed a mountain. What it really means is look at your own life. Teenagers alive right now in 2014 know more about being a teenager in 2014 than all my Googling and Wikipedia will ever teach me. So uh, a young writer right now has a much better ability to write a YA that speaks directly to their generation than, um, than, than, than I would uh, in, in terms of um, understanding how their worlds connect. The world has changed profoundly. And, uh, and it is seen differently because of all of our electronic communication. Um, so I, I think that if you're a young writer, you should not hesitate. Um, you should jump in and write now. You shouldn't sit down and say, I'm going to write a book, because nobody writes a book in one evening, and it gets very frustrating if you think you're going to write a book. If you say, I'm going to write a scene, or I'm going to write a chapter, that's an attainable goal. And then, you know, a few nights later, sit down and write the next scene. But um, there are things that young writers can capture right now when they write that if they wait till they're 25, 35, 45, you may write that same, same story and that same character, but it will not be the story you would have told today. So I would say sit down and write it. It may not be perfect, but you can always go back and make it better. And even if you set that file aside for 15 years, when you come back to it, you will have captured something of being a 17-year-old writer that uh, it goes away. You can't regenerate that. So capture it now. And the final piece of advice, back it up. And I always print out because um, I would have a heck of a time reading my K profiles now. But a piece of paper in a filing cabinet may get a bit tatty and faded, but you will still be able to find your story there. And scanners are much better now than they were. <laughs> Is there a piece of your work that you would want that you want to go back to that you want to re-examine? Um, what is it? Before before launching into writing *Fool's Assassin*, I reread my earlier books and. Um, <laughs> this is embarrassing, especially with Jane in the room. <laughs> no, there, because there is a scene that both Jane Johnson and Anne Grell said 
you should look at this again. It, it's it's slowing down the action. We're going along swimmingly, and then suddenly we get here and we go. And you should look at this. And I looked and I said, no, no, it's it's fine. It's fine. Leave that there. That's and and they both said, oh, it's your book. Okay. <laughs> oh, in the reread, <laughs> I hit that scene and I went, oh, oh dear, I should have listened to my editors. <laughs> That's as close as I come to wanting to go back and, and take some good advice. But you've made me say that in front of Jane. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. Uh, will we ever see anything from the perspective of Jade? Um, that would be very interesting. Um... I have not written him as a viewpoint character. I will say that in this trilogy, you learn a lot more about Shade, and um, and there is a lot to know about him. So you may get get enough of him in in these next books to be satisfied. Um, do I have a, a specific story that I'd want to write from his point of view? Um, maybe, but it it has to be a compelling story. It has to be a story that I would want to write, even if I had never written one word about the realm of the Elderlings, and yeah. then I would write it. If you had, if you got to go back in time and give a sixteen-year-old version of yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? Oh my goodness! Finish college, um, but you you look back and you try to second guess all those decisions you made, and. The fact is, I'm, I'm very happy where I've wound up, so um, I don't know that I would go back to any of those crossroads and change anything for fear that I, I might end up someplace where I, I wasn't happy with who I'd become and, and what I, where I am. So, okay. um, If you were stuck on a desert island and you only had one book for company, and let's assume you have a banana tree and a, you know, a coffee tree mm. and a, you know, a sandwich tree. A barista. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what would the book be for company? I'm going to cheat. I would have The Lord of the Rings. All three three in one volume. So that's maybe The Hobbit too. So. And finally, three very <laughs> silly questions just to, to finish mm-hmm. off. Uh, Simpsons or Futurama? Oh, I can't decide. Um, you know, he's our hometown boy in Tacoma. He's a product of Evergreen uh, State College. So um, uh, we watch all his stuff. So... Uh, I would. I, you, you can't make me decide. I just consume it all. Dragons or bees? Dragons. Bees scare me. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, truth or beauty? Truth or beauty? They are the same thing. Robin Hope, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your very interesting interview. Thank you. Embrace the alternative. With Fab Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to the Bookworm on Fab Radio International. I'm Nympha Hayes. I'm here with the lovely Ed Fortune. Hello, everybody. Um, you can catch us obviously on Facebook and all the hosts of social media. You've got Twitter. You've got Tumblr. You can come and knock at the radio. Don't come and rock at the radio. Oh, you can if you want. We just won't answer. Um, <laughs> so, hello. Um, so, you've you've come back from the 1950s just to, to just tell us just about yeah. It's it. I've come through through some sort of time wibbly wobbly space continuum. Thing, wormhole L space I think we use L space yeah just just very quickly um, to talk to you about books that's weird being it's a like book, book show, show. Um, yes um, what what I'm looking at today it's the um, 
beautiful Wicked Lovely by Melissa Marr. Now, um, I, I I have to admit, I just looked at the at the cover for this one and, and kind of went, ooh, that's pretty. <laughs> I want to read it. <laughs> um, it's one of those where, yes, yes, I did judge a book by its cover. And guess what? I was right. Cool. I, I advocate pretty covers. I advocate picking up a book because it has a pretty cover. Um, this one in particular, um, it's a young adult. Uh, but it's actually sort of an alternative vibe, young adult. Um, it's very, very cool. Um, there's there's a, a main character, Ashling. Um, she's a young girl, and she's sort of grown up with her grandmother. And her grandmother has three main rules. And these three main rules are that you never stare at the invisible fairies, you never speak to the invisible fairies, and most of all, you never attract the invisible fairy's attention. Now, you might think it's actually crazy, but the truth is that Ashlyn does see fairies. And it's sort of in her family blood. So when a fairy starts talking to her and trying to sort of communicate and attract Ashlyn's attention, it all becomes a bit weird. But you, you're, not, you're not supposed to talk to the invisible fairies. You're not, are so, you? See, it, you learn quickly. Which is However, this is a very pretty boy fairy called Keenan, but he's not just any fairy. He's actually the king of the summer court. And he has a very, very um, important reason why he's trying to attract Ashlyn's attention. Um, so the book revolves around Ashlyn, her crush on this really sort of goth alternative guy Seth who's absolutely lovely and lives in a very cool place it's like an abandoned train that he's sort of set up and he lives there and he's a bit of an artist loads of piercings and tattoos and you know cool alternative things so so these are what these these are fairies who are also people or? well these are people and then there's fairies and the fairies are all around and you know there's places where you can go and you can actually recognize fairies like there's a sort of like a club a nightclub where you go and and you can recognize well if you can see through you you can actually see that they're not people they are fairies and they live sort of in and around everywhere so they could be just your your next door neighbour, really. Uh, the problem is that summer is dying, and Keenan, the summer queen, the summer king, needs a queen really bad. And I'm not s- sort of spoiling it because actually the the opening chapter explains to you a little bit of of what the plot is, and the plot is Keenan needs a queen. Unfortunately, there aren't many that are willing to take the challenge because if you fail the challenge the repercussions is you'll be cold forever you'll be the queen of winter Ooh, and and it, it's it basically until the next girl comes across and takes the challenge uh, and, and until you know there's another one that loses and, and doesn't manage to obviously complete the challenge you'll be the queen of winter um, and that's what happened to to the obviously the current Queen of Winter, who fell in love desperately with with the Summer King, and unfortunately wasn't the chosen one. So how, what happens when she gets like? Does she just go back to her day job? Does she 
you know, we'll stop being the Queen of Winter. What happens to you then? Well, consider that obviously, you, if you become the Queen of Winter, you're kind of immortal. So you could have been the Queen of Winter for about 300 years. So everything you've ever known and loved is just withered and died. Uh, and you're very, very lonely. Apart from a, a wolf, you, you have a wolf friend, which is quite cool. Um, but yes, yeah, so the story revolves around fairies. And it's a very dark, very sort of emotional take on fairies. Uh, and it's also the story, obviously, of Ashlyn mainly. Uh, who is the new sort of chosen one that Keenan has to convince to, to take the challenge to see if she can be his queen. Um, it's it's very, very good. It's such a good story. Uh, it's the first in a series. Um, I think there's about five or six books in, in the series. I've only actually read the first two books and I enjoyed both immensely in fact I kind of enjoyed I think um, Ink Exchange the second book a little bit more um, because I liked the main character it's very real so there's not just you know all this fairy malarkey it's it's actually a lot about growing up and being a young woman and, and the dangers of being a young woman because it's mainly told from the girl's point of view the, and that's by Melissa Marr yes. it is by Melissa that Marr that name rings a bell yeah well she's, she's written with Kelly Armstrong she's written many others she's written Carnival of Souls which is a, a fantasy um, she doubles in a bit of everything really she's such a great author it's a lovely lovely voice very very um, defined very strong uh, and her stories are just wonderful um, there's also a um, a graphic novel sort of slash manga version of uh, of some stories that revolve around the wicked lovely world. Um, definitely worth picking up uh, if you like a little bit of a darkness in your fairy tales, and that's pretty much what it is. Set in you know today's world, but with all the magic that comes when you think about fairyland. It reminds me a little bit of Julie Cagua. Uh, I think, she, I, I, I mean, this is completely personal. Please, you know, don't send any complaints. I don't like complaints. Love me. Um, I actually enjoy Melissa Mars writing more. Um, I actually think, um, I, I think it's a bit better paced for my taste. I think Julie Cargo is a bit is a bit slower uh, in the way she tells the stories. And I mean, I've I've read um, um, the Iron King. Um, and it's a lovely story, and again, there's, there's that that element of fairyland to it. Uh, Melissa Mars is a bit darker and edgier, uh, and I think f it, it sort of captured my attention a lot quicker, um, and, and it kept it for a lot longer. So who's it on, and where can we get it? It's Wicked Lovely by um, the wonderfully talented Melissa Mars. It's on HarperCollins. It's available everywhere, and it's the first book in a series. And believe me, you will want to pick up the other ones. Excellent. So um, coming up next, we're going to be talking a bit more about books and generally farting around. You're listening to The Bookworm on fabradiointernational.com. Across the world, 24 hours a day. This is Fat Radio 
真来说。So I think the book that was ruined for me at school, he said in a completely non-secretarial sort of way,、mm-hmm. was Pride and Prejudice. Oh, because I had to, I had to read it. I wasn't inclined to read that sort of thing anyway, partially because of social conditioning, and partially because I actually intricate、uh, intricate social、uh, dramas are my thing. Now that I've grown up and have experienced real world intricate social dramas, when I was fourteen, not a clue. So it's like you have to read this, otherwise your grades will suffer. Okay, I, I grew to resent it, and I think there's a lot of guys. Who resent Jane Austen because they were forced to read it at school, didn't have any interest in it, had to get into it, and thus threw up barriers. Because I think as a guy, you threw up barriers against that sort of writing anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.、Um, Test the Durbervilles, I love English literature. Oh, oh my God! It, it, I don't think it's very good. Actually, I would, I would also point out that Thomas Hardy is not one of my favourite authors. I suspect I suspect that's blasphemy in certain circles. I, I, I hate it so much that I didn't actually read it until about two days before the exam. At which point I realised I probably had to, and I sat down and attempted to cram read the entire thing, which frankly didn't make it any better. 1984, on the other hand, was a book that I read about four times at school, and many of my many of my、um, contemporaries had barely read it once. Didn't like it, and I knew it very, very personally. It also got me into journalism, so it's you know,、mm. so it's all their fault. The thing that you have to do at school, of course, that puts most people off it because it's usually taught terribly is Shakespeare.、Uh, Romeo and Juliet was the one for GCSE when I did it, I believe.、Um, a、mm. trick I discovered when I was a kid, and it was a trick that our te- my teacher, Mr. Atkinson, if you have a great teacher, English teacher or otherwise, that you want to tell us about. We're on social media as radio radio bookworm, not radio bookworm. That's a different thing.、Uh, as radio bookworm,、uh, we're on social media、uh, for Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. Same thing. Just type in radio bookworm and you'll find us. But talking about great teachers,、uh, I had a teacher who turned around and went, "If you read," he started us off with sonnets. And what he did was he made us take a really simple little kind of testy thing, just a couple word test thing. And then he made us read a lot of sonnets and read out some sonnets and all the rest of it. This, this was in a small group. Then he took us back. Now I suspect he cheated by the second test being a little bit easier anyway. He、yeah. was like, but he was like, have you noticed that you find it easier? And everyone was like, oh, have you just shown us a trick, sir? <laughs> yes, I've just shown you a trick. If you if you warm up with Shakespeare, I find yourself just a little bit more. Yeah, a little bit more flexible of the words. Yeah, I think uh, uh, thinking back, I think he took no risks with that tactic, and I think his second set of questions were probably slightly easier to make it happen.、Um, but it's but, true. But isn't that just a confidence builder for kids? Yeah, but it's true with Shakespeare. If you read a lot of Shakespeare,、uh, it's a thing that writers actually admit to doing is that, like before they write their book. They'll read a whole load of what they consider to be good literature,、mm. and they'll feed their mind.、Mm. With the what they consider to be good literature, so they can take it forward.、Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, Romeo and Juliet when it's taught is like it's this great enduring love story for all the ages, and、uh, no, it's it's not. It's really it's 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 a soap opera types thing that gets out of hand because nobody has open and honest communication with anybody.、Um, yeah, I mean, it it is completely. You know, we could we could rant we could rant、uh, substantially about how how Romeo and Juliet just sets up a, a terrible, terrible precedent、mm. um, for everyone. 
Um, but you know, oh my goodness. Um, that said, another another book that really did it for me. I think 1984 was the book that brought me into a whole pile of other bits and pieces, um, including. I mean, I, I ended up reading off the back of 1984. I ended up reading Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver's Travels is a book that you're, you're fed as a child, and they only take you as far as the Lilliputians. Yes. So, so you end up with this... You get this big story, story book, which is full of Gulliver's Travels. Mm-hmm. Gulliver's Travels is a political parody. Yeah, they don't tell you that at school either. Not at all. You, you don't get to study it at school, but you were seeing The Weird Stone of Brisingham, you were putting off The Weird Stone of Brisingham. Yeah. Also, kids. Also, um, also A level English literature, um, Kubla Khan and the Romantic Poets and all that stuff. Um, at seventeen, eighteen, you are too young for that stuff. There's a lot of stuff that is really good literature that you're just too young for, I think. And they and they force it down your throat because this is an important, vital thing that you should be reading. And at the same time, you get taught taught that other young adult stuff, stuff that was young adult when we were young adults, which was quite some time ago, young adult hadn't been invented. Mm. I have talked to English teachers who were like, Harry Potter, that's tosh. And you're like... No, it's not. No, it's not. Stop that. Don't, don't, you dare. Don't you absolutely dare do that to kids. But I was, I was reading a Lord of Dragonlands. I was reading a Lord of Dungeons and Dragons. And... As an there, there's a lot of stuff in Harry Potter about the power of the media and how things get twisted and politics and... As, as, as a kid, I was reading a lot of stuff that, as an adult, I'm allowed to call tosh. But because it was the first time I had encountered that sort of stuff, you know, it was great to me and I should have been encouraged. And I just ignored the teachers. Don't respect authority, that sort of thing. That's a lesson I didn't need. Anyway, shall we run away? Let's run away. Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fab Radio International. So, uh, if you're listening to the radio show, then coming up next is Page Turner. Otherwise, go and have a nice day. It's goodbye from me, Ed Fortune. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Nympha Hayes, produced by A.L. Johnson. <laughs>